1: 22 November Network and Neapolis Media Group proudly present
0: to you The Lone Gunman Podcast
1: with your host Rob Clark, your boy that's right stay tuned I'll be right there What's up, everybody? This is your boy Rob Clark on the Lone Gummin Podcast, episode number 60. Now, I don't know when I started doing this thing, but it was roughly a year ago, and uh, I'd like to call this my one-year anniversary show. It's been a year since we've been doing this, and I can't believe I'm still doing this, but here I am, and hopefully it'll keep going for a while. Today on the show, I have a very special guest returning Mr. Charles Cliff, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, Rob. Thank you back on. I'm honored. I'm on the anniversary show. How oh, awesome. Hey, I wouldn't have it any other way. The last time you were on, I mean, it's almost up to 500 listens. So, <laughs> hey, yeah, uh, that was one of my most listened to shows in the past six months. Wow. They love you. <laughs> you know, this? Someone liked what I was talking about. So oh, yeah. I guess I'm doing something right. That's right. And, uh, I couldn't think of anybody better That I'd like to talk to about Uh, what we're gonna be discussing today And, uh, that is Uh, a little bit of Madeline Brown A little bit of LBJ And a little bit of George Bush We're gonna try to dispel some of these Nonsensical Uh, Fetzer-fueled myths out there Well, there's no shortage of them hate <laughs> that the truth And, uh just just for reference to what we're going to be referring to today, um, I'm going to post a link up on the website tltpodcast.com where everybody can go listen to this show that that uh, Jim Fetzer did. Uh, you can listen to it for you, for yourself, and uh, it's basically a one hour diatribe and then an hour from the men who killed Kennedy. But I'm not even worried about the second hour of that. We're just going to be addressing a lot of the points. Uh, that he brought up in the first hour regarding LBJ and uh, how credible Madeline Brown is, and uh, some of uh, elements relating to George Bush being in Dealey Plaza, but we'll get into that. I promise. Um, so Charles, did you do your homework and listen to the show? <sighs> I suffered my way through it. As did I. It was rough. It was I know. Bad. I know. It's. That, that that show is hard to listen to, you know. Especially, you know, when you get so frustrated, you just want to scream out, and but nobody's listening. Nobody can hear you, you know.
2: Yeah, but
1: it's okay. I've heard of a couple of his other podcasts, and I had the same reaction to those ones too. Oh yeah, that's just about all of them for me. Yeah. So this uh this show. Okay, it's, it basically starts out, and, and it goes it goes two ways with Fetzer. Um, he's a big proponent of, of the Phil Nelson camp, that LBJ was the mastermind behind the assassination. Okay, but in, in, in this one, he, he points out that you have sponsors, facilitators, and mechanics. okay. Now, among the sponsors that he that he mentions in this are Israel, <laughs> the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the CIA, the oil men, the mafia, and the bankers. Okay. Now, granted, I I do agree that all these people probably had a reason to want Kennedy uh, out of office or dead. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think once he did die, they probably all of those groups all benefited. Oh, they sure did. I don't think there's any question about it. Yeah, I mean, Israel, you know, I don't think Kennedy wanted wanted Israel to have nuclear power. Um, And after he died, they did. Uh, The Joint Chiefs of of Staff, of course, were mad because Kennedy wouldn't listen to them when it came to wanting to go to war. And, of course, the CIA was pissed because Kennedy had fired Dulles and, and threatened to smash them into a million pieces and scatter them to the wind. And, of course, the oil men were pissed because of the oil depletion tax. And, of course, the mafia was pissed because Bobby Kennedy was going after them. And then you have the bankers who control everything. So, you know, I would tend to agree with with all those people. Now, not that they were all sponsors of the assassination now, but that they all... Would have wanted or benefited from Kennedy's death. Yeah, and, and I think it's clear that they would have.
2: But to make that leap and say, "Well, because of that, they were all sponsors,"
1: that's kind of a leap of faith, really, with no real, uh, nothing really to back it up. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a giant supposition, you know, to to accuse, yeah. you know, basically the Joint Chiefs of Staff for committing treason, you know, the CIA. I mean, you know, now a lot of these people, I do agree, may have been uh, part of the plot. You know, you can't discount the CIA, of course, you know. Uh, You can't discount the mafia, you know, with the New Orleans ties and Jack Ruby, Um, you know, but— Let's take a closer look now at at what he calls the facilitators. These are the people that he says um, made it possible for this assassination to take place. Okay, We've got LBJ, we've got Hoover, we've got the Dallas Police Department, the Secret Service, Cliff Carter, and D.H. Byrd. Let's start with uh, Lyndon as a facilitator. And he says that, well, since the assassination took place in Texas, Lyndon's home state, uh, that he he provided um, basically the motorcade route through through Cliff Carter, the uh, assassination uh, sniper nest, you know, via D. H. Bird, who owned in the Texas Schoolbook Depository and who had started the Civil Air Patrol, and basically controlled things in Texas. Mm -hmm. Well, to me,
2: the whole Texas angle would tend to point away from Lyndon Johnson. Now, you've got to use a little bit of critical thinking here and common sense. Lyndon Johnson, the vice president, if he is going, let's say he did want to get rid of Kennedy, he wanted to have Kennedy assassinated and take over power,
1: something I always had a problem with, you know, why, why would he choose to do it in broad daylight in front of hundreds of people, um, who, who I'm sure are filming and taking pictures of the event at, you know, at high noon in his home state, like you said, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, you know, if, 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 if he wanted Kennedy dead, you know, it takes him with a plan, and one assassin to pull it off. I mean, you know, back in 1963, I mean, they didn't have the the, uh, the technical the technological advances that we do now as far as security and uh, and all that stuff. I mean, they could have got to Kennedy pretty much anytime they wanted to, really.
2: Yeah, I mean, he was an insider in the White House. I mean, it's not like he had to really. Security clearance and so on. There are so many other ways he could have done it that would have been much more uh, logical and would have left far fewer links to him than to do it in his home state when he's riding two cars. It doesn't. There's
1: just I can't see him doing something that stupid. Right. Not to mention his good buddy, uh, his best friend, actually John Connolly, riding, <laughs> riding right in yeah. front of JFK. They were all. So he's going to have... They could, they could have hit him any time, really. I mean, all you Florida. would need is, is a sniper, you know, located somewhere. I mean, they could have hit him in Houston or, uh, you know, anywhere in Chicago or you know, Florida, wherever he was. I mean, they could have hit him in the in the Rose Garden, you know, from a, from a rooftop nearby in DC with a you know with a sniper yeah. rifle. I mean, not,
2: not somewhere that directly links to Lyndon Johnson. He had done that and done it in texas general suspicion would have gone to him being that he was from texas there were editorials written in foreign countries in fact i believe on the night of the assassination there was an editorial guy in russia who did a radio editorial suggesting that because it had happened in texas johnson should be the one suspected being that he was from texas right So this is, goes back to what i'm saying it's a obvious link right to him that he wouldn't have to do
1: yep and uh all right well next we got j edgar hoover as a facilitator um now with hoover i i I don't know how much of a facilitator he would have been uh beforehand you know I, i know that that There was a uh, Telex sent out, I think it was on the 17th, of a credible threat to assassinate Kennedy in Dallas that they did not act on, uh, you know, didn't let local authorities know. I don't even know if they let the Secret Service know. Um, But definitely, I would say Hoover aided uh, in the cover-up investigation.
2: Hoover didn't like the Kennedys, he didn't like JFK, and he didn't like Bobby in fact I believe he uh, uh, once referred to Bobby as a snot nosed punk or something like that, and he didn't like the Kennedys, in fact he hated the Kennedys, and could he have had, uh, had prior knowledge that there was a, a plan in place to uh, to kill Kennedy? That wouldn't surprise me at all, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if he knew about He would have shed too many tears when it happened. But as a facilitator, I mean, still, uh, you got to remember, these guys that planned it, they would want, anyone who planned this assassination, they would want guys like uh, Hoover and they would want guys like Johnson to really have as, le- uh, you know, not much knowledge of it at all. And just say, you know what, whatever happens, happens, just go with it. And they would want those guys to have plausible deniability. So, um, could he have known about it in advance? Possibly. Um, could he have just, you know, kept his mouth shut? Possibly. But I don't know about the, uh,
1: how much of a facilitator and how much in on the pre-planning he would have been. Right. And then you also have the little problem. Um, Hoover had motivation to basically cover things up, uh, just to protect the FBI in general. If what they say is true about Lee Oswald being an FBI informant, which there's yeah. a good bit of indication for. We have uh, Wagner Carr with his informant number. Um, yeah. I forget exactly what it was, but we have we have Oswald asking for the FBI after he was arrested in uh, New, Orleans. New Orleans. Yeah, and we have him uh, visiting the FBI in Dallas. Yeah, on uh, November 9th. 13 days before
2: the assassination and he drops off an apparent note to James Hosty, the FBI agent in Dallas and then a couple of days after the assassination, Hosty destroys the note of what Oswald left to him and we don't know anything what that note said now, Hosty has claimed and others in the FBI have claimed that it was a threat to blow up the uh, Dallas headquarters of the FBI if so, what are you destroying it for? Then you say, "Look, this guy did have the violence. This guy had was angry. That provides more ammo for the lone nut argument." But no, they go off and they destroy it. I believe he flushed it down a toilet or burned it or something.
1: Or both. (laughs) They didn't want whoever it was didn't want someone to know what that note said. Right. So if Oswald had ties to the FBI, it was it would that would be motivation enough alone for Hoover to. Uh, you know, start covering yeah. things up. You don't want to cover it up. They don't want anyone to know about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we come to the Dallas police department as facilitators, which, um, I tend to agree with, I would say, um, they're at least in- instrumental in being, uh, bumbling detectives <laughs> when it comes to, uh, investigating things there and of course they turned into the keystone cops yeah and, and of course being very very lax with their uh prisoner transfer security um yeah. but you know as far as beforehand i mean you, you you can see cops placed on uh the overhead uh triple overpass there i mean they did have cops um in different places um, you know they did respond relatively quickly, but who's to say? I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on. Even Jesse Curry um, said later that, that they that they just couldn't put Oswald up in that six floor window with a rifle in his hand. No, they never did that. And uh, just by the way they they went through and pretty much destroyed the crime scene from whatever. I mean. There's still debates
2: on what rifle was found on the sixth floor, whether it was a Carcano, whether it was a Mauser. There's debates on how many shells were found at the door. The chain of evidence uh, for much of the most important evidence just gets destroyed. Once you destroy the chain of evidence, uh, the chain of evidence, or uh, once you destroy it, it's it's almost invalid because you can't tell what's what.
1: Yeah, and I would also. On you've to got an, different times for
2: different pieces of evidence being logged in, and then you've got stuff that goes missing, and it, it just was a horribly scrambled, horribly run
1: um, investigation. Yeah, from start to finish, and you know I also have to fault them too for not not recording Oswald's interrogation audio. Right, you know
2: the only thing we have. Of those scrambled up notes from Will Fritz, which has really done us more harm than good, because the, you can't make sense of them anyways, and all, now all you got are people's interpretations of them, and that just leads into more confusion.
1: Yeah, and a, a, interesting thing I think it was in Jim Marr's Crossfire um, that the Dallas Police did have an audio recording system in place for interrogations, and that either they did chose not to use it or. They did use it, and we will never, ever, ever hear that audio because it is buried. They didn't like what they heard, and they don't want anyone else to hear it, so they destroy it. I'm sure it was destroyed or or locked away Mm -hmm. deep somewhere uh, if that did occur. But like you said, all we have is these notes from Hostie, uh, Fritz, Holmes, um, a couple other people. They're very discombobulated, disjointed. uh, Yep. You know, I don't think they asked the right questions uh, the right way. They just bumbled the whole thing from start to finish. You know, like you said.
2: And most of the interrogation probably would not have been admissible anyways, because Oswald never was given a lawyer.
1: That's a good point too. That's a fundamental right. Yeah. So most of what he said probably would have been thrown out if it had gotten to court, because without a lawyer, it's not valid. Yep, that's a very, very good point. And also, I think they they didn't do a very good job uh, when it comes to um, questioning witnesses. You know, it was just, tell us what you saw. Write this affidavit and sign it. it. You know, they weren't really questioned, you know.
2: No, tell us what you saw. Thank you. Goodbye. They didn't ask questions or anything.
1: Yeah, And half the witnesses, they ignored a bunch of witnesses that they should have talked to. Yeah, that's true, too. So the FBI. All right, let's get to Mr. Cliff Carter, LBJ's aide, whom uh, Jim Fetzer says uh, coordinated everything in Dallas as far as the motorcade uh, setting up uh, the assassins and all this other nonsense.
2: Well, Cliff Carter was um, one of the uh, right-hand guys for um, LBJ. Um, he was allegedly, like you said, by Fexer, uh arranged to um, basically arranged everything. He was, I guess, LBJ's point man in Texas. But, I mean, I don't know where they get all of this. I mean... He, what are they basing that on? Is that, has anyone ever said that or is that just something that they're making up because he was a, a close associate of LBJ? I mean,
1: I don't get it. Yeah. Well, once again, the proof is, is lacking, you know, as far as it documents
0: is. and that, that's, I mean, uh, and then again,
2: is something that kind of, I think uh, also Billy Solestis, who we could probably talk about more a little bit later, claimed but as we know Billy Solestis is not exactly a uh, a silver dollar uh blue ch- uh, blue chip source uh, he has got a lot of problems with uh, his
1: credibility problems that he admits to himself yeah i mean he, he pretty much he pretty much told the the jury in that in that trial that that he, they shouldn't listen to a word he says cuz he's a pathological liar he's a pathological liar and con man yeah, and uh, most of this stuff, I think, with the LBJ stems from uh, Billy Soestes, really. Well, that, that's where a lot of this these claims
2: came from, because he was trying to cut a deal for immunity because he was up on other charges. And he goes on the stand under oath in 1984 and basically testifies that uh, – Goes under oath and swears that uh, Johnson engineered JFK's assassination. Plus, I believe it was six other murders. And um, basically, he said that Mac Wallace was the trigger man. I know we're going to talk a little bit about Mac Wallace in a little bit. And but he goes on the stand before he says all this. He tells the jury, "Look, I'm a pathological liar. I'm a con man. I'm basically not to be believed." And then he goes off and spins his tail. Well, what are we supposed to take from that? I don't he goes on and spins his tail after saying how unreliable he is.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's pretty hard to pin, to pin things on dead men, Charles, you know? Right. <laughs> when they aren't here to defend themselves. But since you mentioned Mr. Mac Wallace, let's go ahead and, <sighs> and talk about old Mac for a minute. Um, mm-hmm. Now... A lot, a lot of what they like to point to when it comes to Mac Wallace is, of course, the fingerprint in the sixth <sighs> floor, the un- unidentified fingerprint in the sixth floor. and so that's uh, your so-called smoking gun. Yeah. Yeah, why don't, why don't you address that a little bit? And All right, well, after the search of the Texas School Book Depository, they did fingerprinting, and
2: they found, uh, you know several prints, uh, some from Oswald, some from other employees of the uh, Texas School Book Depository. But there was one print that they could not identify, one single lonely solitary fingerprint that was unidentified. And it went unidentified for many, many years. And then I guess it would have been around the mid to late 90s. Uh, there was a fingerprint examiner a guy by the name of Nathan Darby that did a study of the um the fingerprint and he comes up and deciphers uh, the fingerprint belonged to Mac Wallace who many have um many have um titled LBJ's personal hitman so at that point People jumped through hula hoop, saying, oh, we've got the Kennedy case solved. Mac Wallace was the hitman and LBJ was the mastermind. And it kind of went from there real quickly. But once you start looking at Nathan Darby and his investigation into the fingerprint, it may not be quite as reliable as what you would first think. I know that there's been a lot of people out there Walt Brown being one of them, I think Barr McClellan, um, Roger Stone, of course, Fetzer, have kind of, you know, put all their eggs in the Nathan Darby basket and proving that Mac Wallace was a shooter. At the time of his study, Nathan Darby was, I believe, in his mid-80s. Yeah. He had not been certified for many, many years. His certification had run out many years before that. And he was working off of a photocopy. Not a picture, a photocopy. Now what happens when you take a photocopy of a picture? The ink it, bleeds. it degrades the quality of the picture. Yeah. That's just common sense. So you've got a... Basically what you have is a, a guy in his mid-80s trying to make a positive identification from a photocopy of a fingerprint.
1: By sight. By sight. I can't take that seriously. No, me either. Um, you know, it, it, he had, if he hadn't kept up a certification, because it, it's like any other uh, profession that requires you to be certified, such as teachers and nurses yeah. and, and doctors. You know, if you're not up to speed on the latest techniques of your craft, um, you're not going to be as as accurate. You know. No. And the computers that they had back in the mid the mid nineties, if he used a computer, um, just didn't have the capability that we do now. No,
2: technology is always evolving, and of course, um, as we a lot of people may know, Joan Mellon is now working on a new book based a lot on the Mac Wall of Fingerprint and. In recent interviews, she has said that she has had another examiner who is apparently an officer of the organization that certifies latent print examiners, and she's had him do a study, and he has come up with the conclusion that the print is not Mac Wallace's, and he's been using all of the latest 2014-2015 technology. Darby back in the late
1: 90s going off of a fingerprint or off of a uh, photocopy. Right. He's not using photocopies. He's using actual photos from the archives of this print. Right. Along with crystal clear. This person also did that uh, Nathan Darby didn't do
2: is he used a fingerprint from Mac Wallace uh, that was a known fingerprint that was taken off of him previously, as well as a fingerprint from his naval records. Right. So she compared the three prints. So the print on the sixth floor, the naval record prints, and the third print, which was one that was taken off of Mac Wallace previously before two. The naval record print and the
1: other Mac Wallace print matched. The one on the sixth floor didn't match either of the other ones. Right. And people just don't understand. They don't get this through their heads. They still. No. I mean, they don't want to cling to Nathan Darby's identification
2: and say, oh, well, he was a, a longtime uh, noted uh, fingerprint analyst. Well, that's all well and good. But if you're not using uh, up-to-date technology and you're going off of a photocopy, I'm sorry, that doesn't. Pass is good evidence, uh, and the, th- the other thing is, it they've never been able to produce one other fingerprint expert that backs up Mac Wallace's or that backs up uh, Nathan Darby's claim. They're going Nathan Darby, yeah, um, guy in his mid eighties, and that's their gold standard for evidence.
1: Well, they they did have another guy that substantiated it, but you know what, Charles, he retracted it the day a day later. Right. Because he didn't yeah. want his reputation to be tarnished. he said, "No, I was wrong." Yep. So <laughs> why are you still?
2: But these people still cling to it like they're like. For, I don't know why. I mean, evolve with the evidence. Don't just cling to it and just stay. You know, once it seems to fit your conclusion, you stay solid, and then you don't.
1: You don't evolve. You don't take another look at it. it doesn't make any sense. No. And, and, and the guy that retracted, you know, he's a. It, when you when you're in the fingerprint identification business, one wrong identification can kill your reputation. I mean, yeah, it'll destroy your career. Yeah, and your credibility. And he had second thoughts very quickly about that print and about who it did who it did it and how they did it, and uh, what they had to work with. So he retracted. Yeah very very quickly and hopefully uh, when Joan Mellon's book comes out and she said it it is at the publishers she's done with it it's just waiting to print so hopefully it'll be out sometime this year and we can put this Mac Wallace fingerprint nonsense to bed once and for good
2: oh that would be nice because
1: we spent far too much time talking and debating it oh no doubt and, and another thing yeah. with Wallace that that they like to point out with uh, that that you know they say that he was LBJ's personal hitman. Okay, yeah. Where's the evidence of this? Okay, we know he committed one murder. Okay, he was right. tried for it and he was acquitted. Okay, but that murder of, of of Kinzer. Okay, the guy was the guy was sleeping with Mac Wallace's wife. Okay, and he rolled up in the golf club broad daylight. And shot him and killed him. It's called a crime of passion. Okay, mm-hmm. it's called not being in your right state of mind if when you find something out. That's why Mac Wallace got off from that murder, not because LBJ LBJ pulled strings from, uh, you know, from the, the judge. judge no, and just because he had a he he shot somebody in a crime of passion that was putting it to his wife, um mm. doesn't doesn't mean he committed seven other murders. No. And the main source for the seven other murders is a guy, an admitted lo- pathological liar and con man. Exactly. So take that for what it's worth. Yep. And and another thing that contributes to the Mac Wallace fairy tale is, is this whole Loy Factor, Men on the Sixth Floor book that came out back in the mid-90s. <laughs> you know... Once again, there, there's no proof whatsoever of Loy Factor's story at all. No, it, it's, all, it's all a
2: story with
1: nothing to back it up. Add it to the list of many.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of people trying really hard to, you know, basically nail down LBJ as the, the mastermind. And they're trying... St- over and over again, books, documents, and whatever. And really, when you look at all the hard evidence of Mac of of LBJ being the, uh, the 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 mastermind, it's just not there. You can look, you can find a lot of speculation, you can find a lot of stories and a lot of claims, and you're not finding anything really solid that you can go to court with.
1: No, I mean was I mean, it doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean I think we can all agree that LBJ was a bastard a despicable, he was not a good guy. He was an idiot. A despicable human being. Um, you know, I could go on and on about what a piece of shit he was, but just because he was that kind of person doesn't make him a murderer. No. And the
2: thing is, a lot of people claim that LBJ was this ruthless political fourth that would stop at nothing to, uh, to gain power. But that's not... Entirely true, and one of the things—if you look—if you look at some of the key points of Johnson's career, you'll find that um, he's not always the ruthless political. I mean, take take the nineteen sixty uh, presidential uh, primary. Johnson refused to enter any primaries. Uh, Johnson tried to win it all in the back rooms. He wasn't the big political fighter that a lot of people made him out to be. And you look at 1968 when he was the sitting president, who normally normally sitting presidents have a huge advantage to get re-nominated. As soon as the heat started going on him, he got out. He ducked out. Once uh, McCarthy was giving him a, a, a run, and once Kennedy entered the race, he didn't want to fight. They talk about him being this ruthless political operative, this ruthless pro- political, that will take anything to win, but as soon as the heat gets on him, he ducks out. And, um, you know, he was a bad guy. He was not a good guy. And he associated himself with a lot of different, um, you know, political... Um, you know bad people but that's you still can't make that leap automatically from there to he organized a Kennedy assassination it just that's just a too big of a leap of faith without you know concrete evidence to back it up
1: yeah and another thing people like to point to is that you know the fact that he was wrapped up in this whole uh Billy is scandal and he yeah, was, was Bobby Baker yeah and he was probably going to be uh Indicted in all this mess, he's going to be indicted
2: and possibly thrown out of office. Right, and there were already rumors swirling that Kennedy was going to drop him from the ticket in '64.
1: Right, but is, is but that motivation enough? No, no any way of proof that he organized Kennedy's assassination? No, and there's no guarantee that if he was to become president, they wouldn't still go after his ass. You know no, what I mean? Of course. So what difference does it make whether he's vice president or president? If, if the right. shit's going to hit the fan, it's going to hit it.
2: Crime. It doesn't matter what your job
1: is. Exactly. But, you know, I guess Life Life Magazine chose not to run with the story and it went by the wayside because, you know, they didn't want to assassinate two presidents in one week. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into, I, I, I did pull some audio from, from Fetzer's show and, uh, we're going we're gonna to listen to a little bit of it, and then we can comment on it, okay? All right. Um, now, this uh, this we're going to start getting into some Madeline Brown here. And for, the, for everybody that doesn't know the Madeline Brown story, I'll, I'll put it in a nutshell real quick for you. Um, she claims to be Lyndon Johnson's mistress um, for many, many years. She claims to have bore him a son, Stephen, in 1950. Um, she claims that she was at a party, um, held at Clint Murchison's house, among many other notables, like Richard Nixon and Hoover and, uh, LBJ, where LBJ came out of this boardroom and said, you know, after tomorrow, I'm not going to have to worry about those goddamn Kennedy boys any longer. And then she claims she met him again on, uh, New Year's Eve of 63 at the Driscoll Hotel, Where she confronted him and said, you know, people said that, you know, you're the one that had these people killed. And he told her, no, the the CIA and the oil boys wanted Kennedy dead. And uh, on and on through the years, there's many, 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 many things. And we'll get into it. But um, she's a vital figure for the the whole LBJ did it crowd, um, as we'll find out here shortly. Now, the first clip I have here is regarding uh, her son, Steven, okay? So let's see if this works, because I've never done this before. So <laughs> here we go. Clip. Okay, now that clip was regarding her son, Stephen, um, right. who actually brought a lawsuit against LBJ to prove that he was his son, that it, uh, he didn't show up for, <laughs> consequently. And that's Fetzer claiming that the Navy kidnapped Stephen so he couldn't make it to the trial, <laughs> if you can believe that one. Which, okay, well, show me the evidence of it. Exactly. Where is the I mean- proof? what he says. Sure. Cause he supposedly has had over a hundred conversations with Madeline Brown. Uh-huh. Where are they? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and even the one he claims he, he, he claims he's on a a JFK Lancer DVD, I think from ninety seven or ninety eight, uh, that he had a sit down interview with, with Madeline Brown and, and but then he said he was watching the D V D and tried to find it and it wasn't on there. <laughs> so <laughs> who the hell knows? This next one, this next clip, is uh pertains to the Murchison Party. Oh boy. Here we go. Party, okay. Now, if 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 these heavy hitters, as he calls them, I mean, we're talking about Nixon. We're talking about what Hoover? Who else was supposed Hoover, to be there? Johnson. Yeah. Connolly, the oil okay. man. Yeah. Now there are so many problems with this with this
2: merchant and party story. First of all. In original interviews with Madeleine Brown, uh, there are interviews with her early on when she came to the public that she never even mentions the party story. In fact, I have a documentary. It's called Beyond JFK, The Question of Conspiracy. It was sort of a companion piece that went with uh, Oliver Stone's JFK. In fact, on some deluxe editions of the DVD, the uh, documentary comes with it. It features a fairly lengthy interview with Madeline Brown. At no time during that interview does she ever mention any party at Clint Murchison's house or ever being with LBJ the night before the assassination. Don't you think that would be the first thing she would bring up in
1: any interview? Yeah, you think Uh, so? At any time? Yeah, and I think her list grows as well over the years. Yeah, well... That's the next
2: thing I was going to say. That then when the party story first came out, the number of people at the party would fluctuate. And um, I had a, just recently had an email uh, exchange with Walt Brown, who is uh, the longtime researcher, written many books on the assassination, who uh, interviewed Madeline Brown on more than one occasion. The first time he interviewed her, there was six people at this so-called party. The last time he interviewed her, there was over 40 people at the party. The first time he interviewed her, she never mentioned John Connolly being at the party. The last time he did, she said that John Connolly was there. He questioned her about that. So she said, well, I had to keep Connolly's presence at the party a secret. Well, but you could tell that LBJ was at the party, but Conley was a no-no? Yeah. I mean, come on. When you, when you see this and the, the, the description of the party keeps changing, the guests keep changing, the number of people there keeps changing, you, you got to start thinking, well, is this even a legitimate story? And then you got to start asking yourself, well, were all the people that were said to be at this party, were they there? Well, the time uh, she said that LBJ arrived at this party, he's documented as being in Fort Worth, checking in at the Hotel Texas at 11.50, because he had been with JFK at the Houston Coliseum at a dinner speech that night. They travel to um, Fort Worth to stay at the Hotel Texas, and they didn't get there until just before midnight, Right, and he, he was photographed. Around midnight in the lobby of the Hotel Texas, and was never seen by anybody to leave the hotel that night. Lyndon Johnson's a pretty recognizable face, especially in Texas, and yeah. he's a big guy. He was over six feet tall. I think if he's leaving, people are going to notice him leaving a hotel.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure he would have been surrounded by security and Secret Service. Of course.
2: But then they claim that he just nonchalantly, discreetly slipped out of the hotel. Yeah. When
1: you're vice president of the United States, you don't nonchalantly, discreetly slip out of anywhere. No. No. It just doesn't happen. No, because I'm sure there would have been press there, camping out. There would have been hotel employees everywhere. Right. Someone's going to see him leaving. But yet not
2: one person has ever come forward to say, yeah, I saw him leave the hotel. Right. And she claims that Richard Nixon was there. Well, Richard Nixon was documented in, uh, well, he was in Dallas. I believe he was there for, I think it was like the uh, Pepsi uh, Bottlers Convention or something like that. Yeah. But he was at a show being uh, put on by an actor by the name of Robert Clary, who was in the TV show Hogan's Heroes. And he was seen by Robert Clary, who was on stage up front, Sitting at a table With the actress Joan Crawford And they were there till at least 11 o'clock that night uh, At this show there So was Richard Nixon even there And then she claims Hoover was there And in various versions Of the stories She claims that the party was for J. Edgar Hoover I don't know if she has any Evidence to back that up but Hoover was in Washington the night before the assassination. Yeah. So all of these people that she's claiming was at this quote party,
1: they're somewhere else, and they're documented as being somewhere else. Yeah, and here's another problem yeah. I have with that, Charles. That if, if, if you're going to have this meeting, okay, of, of these big swinging dicks, and and they're going to you know make the final plans for this assassination. Are they really going to be worried enough to have some some uh, females around? That you know, you know what I'm saying? Why, why the hell would Madeline Brown or any other woman or or be at this party? I mean, yeah, I, I would this think is it'd be most, a quote
2: secret meeting
1: yeah. to make the
2: final preparations for an
1: assassination. Are
2: they just going to have
1: random people hanging out there? Oh, they got so many servants or stuff like. It's foolish to think of that. Yeah, they got somebody bartending, they got somebody serving hors d'oeuvres, and waiters and waitresses and maids, and I mean, you know, that it just wouldn't happen like that.
2: But we haven't even come to the biggest problem with the party yet. There's a real big problem that trumps everything else. What's that? The house that Clint Murchison or that Madam Brown says the party was held at, owned by Clint Murchison. Well, I'm sorry, but there are Dallas real estate records. Clint Murchison sold that house in 1959. <laughs> so I guess he went back to his old house to throw a party.
1: A secret party. A secret party. Maybe the new owners didn't even know.
2: They're all huddled up down there in a billiard room making plans while they're up there sleeping. I don't know. The party, the, you look into this party and this is just problem after problem after problem. Yeah. And really, has anybody else—all of these, I don't know, six to forty people that were at this party—ever come forward and said, "Yeah, I was there." Nobody else has mentioned it, other than Madeline Brown.
1: Yeah, because fortunately, Charles, they're all dead by the time she came out with the story. Madeline Brown also claims that the party was written
2: about uh, by a, uh, like, an entertainment gossip columnist in. The Dallas Morning News, there's no record of it.
1: Nope. Nope. And even if there was... some so, these claims are just, just fallen by the wayside. There's nothing to back any of it up. No, it's no. It's just Madeleine Brown making claims where she changes story after story. Right. And, and you know, it's quite possible, um, you know, that there was, or if there was a party, that it was just a party. And that yeah. a lot of these people that she claims were there, weren't there. Um, you know, cause you know how these, uh, well-to-do folks, you know, like to get together and, and all this happy nonsense, but on a Thursday oh, night, sir. a Thursday night,
2: Thursday night in the middle of November, they're all getting together, having this big, uh, soiree and then a group
1: of people go into some room and plan an assassination. Huh. Yeah. It just sounds ridiculous. It does. It does, and but like like I said, you'd be—I mean, well, you wouldn't—but people out there would be surprised at how many people rely on all this information to base that LBJ was, you know, behind the assassination. Well, part of the problem
2: is people just like stuff that sounds good. They don't do any critical thinking and they don't do any research into it. They just say, "Oh well, this sounds good. It sounds like it's something I could buy into, so let's go with it."
1: Yeah. You no.
2: just go in and you've got to look into this and say, well, is this person telling the truth
1: or is this person just making up tall tales? Yeah, what it does for people, and you know, lot,
2: more often than not, a lot of these people that are claiming with these bombshell revelations have nothing to back up their story.
1: No, and what it does is, is you know, it, it makes sense on the surface, but when, as soon as you peel back even one layer, it just falls apart. others seem to pop up. Yep. All right, let's move on to the next clip. I think we touched on this earlier. Um, we'll see if he has anything else to say about it here. That's her again. Here we go. Basically what he's saying there, Charles, is there, there's some, there's some cover-up in play about Madeline's story that they don't, that they don't want to get out. Even, even, wow. going, even going so far as to accuse this John Williams guy of, of purposely uh, not following up on her most important point of the story.
2: you know what, I don't I don't agree with you there. I don't think it was Oswald in the doorway. At that point, Fexer turned on Len. He started, you know, calling him a cover-up artist. He, I think he even went as far to call him a Mossad agent. Oh. And then on his podcast, he would play clips from Len's show and critique him and say how he was covering up the truth. And this is, again, what Fexer is doing here because... He says that he didn't go into the Madeline Brown story very much and this John Williams was covering, you know, basically covering up and, and that he's trying to prevent the story from coming on. It's a typical fetter stool, a tool, that's why so many people get annoyed with him. I'm not trying to really make this into a gym fetter bashing, uh, but I'm sorry, it, it really annoys me. Uh, he's done it to so many people. He did it to me once. He's done it to several other people, and it really annoys me because his actions really help prevent, uh, you know, good research from going on. Because he starts attacking people, and then people ultimately have to go and defend themselves from the nonsense that he's creating. And he's doing it
1: here with this John Williams guy in relation to the Madeline Brown story. Right, and, and claiming that, you know, the reason that his interview is not on the Lancer DVD is part of that whole conspiracy to... Yeah, No, so now the Lancer people are all part of the cover-up. Uh.
2: It just gets ridiculous. And uh, I might add, he's not the only one that does it. There are several people, if you're in the Facebook groups or any of the discussion groups, that take the same tactics. And normally, the people that do it, you can trace back to a relationship with
1: Spencer. Yep, the Oswald Innocence Campaign. <laughs> and we're talking about people like Richard Hook, Ralph St. Richard Sharnan. Richard Sharnan. All these nasty guys that you cannot disagree with at all. No, because once you disagree with them, they're going to be right on you. And it happens repeatedly. I know a
2: number of good researchers, Trish Fleming, Zachary Gendrell, Carmine uh, Savastano, uh, who you've had on recently uh Greg Parker uh all of these different guys on there and they have all had the same treatment
1: from these guys repeatedly yeah and they're they're not researchers i mean they no, he, they're not they're just peddling stories yeah i mean that, that you know when Ralph and brought first brought up this Oswald and Dory nonsense he said it was because he was a chiropractor and he could see uh that by by the way he was standing in the doorway that it wasn't Oswald or I mean it it wasn't Love Lady that it really was Oswald by the way his clothes fit. What? That was the genesis of the whole thing. Yeah. Richard Hook does this photo analysis stuff. And I've asked Richard Hook on probably a dozen occasions what are your credentials for analyzing photographs? He has never answered me. He doesn't have any. <laughs> he doesn't. You know, it's pretty pretty. And then you get
2: Richard Sharman with his statistical odds, but he never really explains what they're based on, and there's no validity to them. They're just random numbers that seem to sound good to him. I don't know. I I tried to look at some of his articles, and none of them made sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, and he. And if
2: you even question them, you don't even have to necessarily disagree with them. If you question them, and ask, well, how did you arrive at that?
1: They get hostile immediately. Yeah, well, I mean, he's a rube, but they're all rubes. They, they they, all believe the LBJ nonsense. They all believe Judith Barry Baker. They all of believe course. George Bush was there, and on and on well, and that's on. that's another thing we should touch on, because that's something we haven't touched on yet either, and that's just as ridiculous. Oh, we'll get there. Let me uh, let me hurry up and play this uh, clip about Bush. Okay. Here we go. In
3: 1977, where E. Howard Hunt uh, was uh, relating to his son, St. John, the chain of command in relation to the assassination, which went from Lyndon Johnson to Court Meyer, and who was in charge of covert ops for the CIA at the time, to David Ackley Phillips, who was in charge of Western Hemisphere for the CIA, to William Harvey, who oversaw assassination conducted by the agency to David Sanchez Morales and blow them the mechanics and the supervisors including
1: on blurry images that Richard Hook has drawn on. Uh,
2: and this goes right back to what we were just talking about. Misidentification, wanting something to be true based on really sketchy evidence. So the whole George the whole George Bush thing is of course a lot of people may or may not know but there is this photograph of this guy standing right in front of the T.S. Texas School Book Depository. And the guy's kind of standing in shadows, and he's standing kind of sideways to the camera. And he's just standing there. He's not doing anything really. He's just standing there in front of the building. And people have identified the guy as George Bush. And they try to claim, well, it's because the hairline matches, which it doesn't. Based on that one picture alone and really nothing else, well, the other thing they bring up, which is a little strange, I I do uh, agree, but it's not proof of anything. Is that George Bush said he couldn't remember where he was when JFK was assassinated? Based on those two things, they've tried to now make the leap of faith and said that George Bush was the coordinator of a hit team, <laughs> huh?
1: Yeah, well, the, the, that photo you're talking about, the William Allen photo, uh, yeah. in front of the Texas School Book Depository, um, you know, they, they say just because of his hairline, the way he stands with what, well, a lot of people stand with their hands in their pockets, a lot of people wear suits, yeah, of course they do, and a lot of people wore their hair like that back in the '60s. Okay. Yeah, that was a common. That was common. Yeah, it's called the you know the the comb over. You know what I'm saying? We had a very distinct part and it was, you know, brill cream down and, and whatnot. It was, a, it was a, a very popular style of police officers as well as businessmen. Um, but when you look a little closer at that photo, the hair, like you said, the hairline doesn't match, the, the nose doesn't match, the chin doesn't match. Um, and when you examine a couple other of William Allen's photos from that day, Uh, I do believe we actually get a front view of the George Bush figure. I'm looking at it right now, and it is not George Bush. Yeah. And and you'll say, oh, well, that's not the same guy. Well, the texture, he's wearing a very distinctive suit that has a very distinctive texture pattern. Texture, kind of checkered pattern. He's
2: got the same slim tie. He's got the same belt. It's the same guy, and he's standing in exactly the same spot. Yep, and, uh, and it's taken by the
1: same photographer. Yeah, but yet it's not George Bush. Come on, or, or I mean, it's not um the same guy. Come on, it is not George Bush. It's clearly not George. It's Bush. clearly not George Bush, and I found that guy in in uh, I think three different Allen photos from that day, and one time I got him with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Now. Mm-hmm. George Bush never smoked (laughs) so (laughs) I mean you know if people would just do a little bit of uh, of digging you know just to corroborate or or substantiate claims they would find the same thing you know just go look at you know William Allen was there on the scene he didn't just take one photograph that day he took many and people aren't statues they do move and You know, he was taking a lot of photos of of police activity in front of the Texas School Book Depository that day, as well as other things, but um, this guy, whoever it is, was most likely a detective. Yeah.
2: And to make it even worse is that Richard Hook has come out with an article claiming not only that George Bush Sr. was there, he's also made the claim (laughs) that George W. Bush was there.
1: Yeah, because George
2: W. <laughs> Bush at the time was 17 years old. <laughs> You've got to be kidding! I know and it's based on some kid standing out there. He has a you know a slight resemblance to George W. Bush. I don't think it's very strong. He has a very slight resemblance, but he's made the conclusion that it's George W. Bush, and
1: that George W. Bush it was involved. Complete We're, nonsense. Yeah, and another part of that claim is is of course. Uh, what related to the auction six photograph that, that houses the famous doorway image. What, what Richard hook has done is of course the Dow techs building is in the background of of that photo. Right. And he's alleging that George W. Bush can be seen in one of the windows with a shooter. Um, And I'm sorry, but I just don't see it. Charles
2: no, <laughs> you don't see it, Rob,
1: because it's not there. <laughs> it's
2: They're making par-
1: stuff up as they go, almost. It's getting ridiculous. It's it's at its best, you know. I mean, first you had Badge Man, yeah. and and now we have George Bush and his hairline, and a, and another guy and a gun, and all this other stuff, and, and and a blurry image that he's drawn, colors on, and outlines, and photoshopped, <laughs> and, and he calls it evidence. <laughs>
2: If this was a murder mystery novel, no one would buy it because no one would... It wouldn't seem too ridiculous to people. And yet they're claiming this is real life. Just complete... Ugh. It annoys me because there's so many other researchers out there that are doing good research into stuff. I mentioned a bunch of them earlier. And yet these guys are going around trying to bully people into believing they're crap. Yeah. It's just frustrating sometimes because these guys are such oh, it just drives me
1: crazy and we, we, we've we never had any solid proof Charles that, that George Bush was ever in the CIA other than one year as a civilian head of it in the
2: yeah, 70s uh, one year but
1: do we have any other
2: proof that he was an agent
1: well they, they like no, to point then, out uh, th- 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 that's another thing people point to they're like oh well
2: look at what he named one of his boats Yeah, I think it was like Zapata or something like that.
1: Yeah, and the Barbara. And that's supposed to be clues that he was part of the CIA. Well, they also like to point out to that Hoover document that says, George Bush of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. Have you seen that document? I have seen that document. How the hell would Hoover know who is a CIA agent back then? Would be? How would he know that? No, it's not like the CIA and the FBI were... were had a, had a good working relationship back then. No, a lot of the times they butted heads constantly. Yeah, I mean he, they wouldn't know who their... he wouldn't know who their secret assets were. I mean... The CIA the
2: CIA's not going to share info with Hoover.
1: No, especially but, not but on they, their agents.
2: No. That, that's nonsense. Yeah. That's and, why I, I I think that's a bogus document because there's no way Hoover's
1: going to know who that that Bush is part of the CIA it's impossible yeah and and I'm not saying that that George Bush is a great guy either I mean I'd put him on par with LBJ as far as being an evil bastard (laughs) well sure he's not a good guy either but just because someone's not a good guy doesn't mean they were part of killing Kennedy no I mean that's just it, it's ridiculous on his face. Right. <laughs> so now let, let's get, oh, back. we can, we can talk for hours about these guys. I know. We still just scratch the surface. And here, here's another one of Madeline Brown's, uh, assertions of proof. Um, supposedly LBJ upon his death, left, uh, some kind of documentation that she would be, she and her son, Steven would be taken care of for the rest of her life. Uh, so let me find this clip. Here we go. So here we have the incredible. I'm sorry, I'm laughing at this. It's, it's absurd. We have the incredible Hulk ripping out the safety deposit <laughs> box. <laughs> Someone just
2: walked in and ripped the safety deposit box out of a wall.
1: Sure they did. Yeah, where, where's the record of this? Where's the police it, report? Is
2: there a police report filed? Hey, somebody ripped this safe deposit box out of the wall.
1: I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, is there sounds and to me nothing to support it yeah it sounds to me like somebody had asked for for evidence from her at one point in time and that, and that was her story well I had it in a they safety deposit, a safe box. deposit box yeah but then, then some huge muscular guy came and ripped it out of the wall I mean come on yeah
2: Safe deposit box out of a wall. That's going to be in the newspaper because that's such an offbeat, absurd story. There's going to be records of this.
1: Yeah, people There's talking no about
2: it. Ever produced? No, this boy. is not something that's just going to go unnoticed by people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know it's.
2: I'm sorry, I had to laugh at it because it's so ridiculous. And people are trying to pass this off as some kind of evidence. And it's just crazy story after crazy story, and whenever you try and produce evidence, there's another excuse.
1: Yep, story after story if after, after don't story. Don't want to, cling to this woman's stories is legit.
2: Come on, well, they up, people. This is absurd. This is nonsense.
1: Exactly. I mean, we have we have much much more evidence to look at, real evidence in this case to look at, yeah. than this shit.
2: stories yeah you honestly could because there's that many and then you take the discrepancies in the whole mac Wallace thing you take the discrepancies with the the whole billy solestis you could write three or four books on on the problems with this stuff it's time to get rid of this stuff and start looking at proper evidence stuff that actually leads somewhere stuff that has documentation not stories made up by any person that comes off, comes out of the, comes out of the woodwork and wants to claim stuff. Start paying attention to stuff you can actually prove. Something that's got uh, you know tangible evidence to back it up. Not these ridiculous stories.
1: Yeah, man, and you ridiculous. these ridiculous
2: stories you just end up on a wild goose chase. It's it's a waste of time. It's counterproductive, but
1: people still do it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard not to pay attention to them because you feel the need to correct them and, and not have other right. people get suckered in to believe in this crap.
2: Yeah, well, that, that's part of my problem is that people that are new to the case are going are gonna to hear this and they're going to say, wow, what a story. But people who have done proper research are going to realize that there's nothing to these stories. They're just fantasies. They're distractions. So you got to try and tell these people, look, don't follow this. This doesn't lead anywhere. And then get you got the people trying to spin these tales, and then they get confrontational.
1: Yeah, yeah, it just
2: gets absolutely frustrating sometimes.
1: Yeah, because to, to...
2: because you know that there's good evidence out there, but way too often.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's you know, that's it's it that's the exciting stuff, you know, that's the uh, high profile stuff, that's the love stories, that's the yeah, the romantic the love story, the big party. They're not reality. Not at they're all. They're
2: just stuff that sounds good on paper, but there's there's no proof to it.
1: Nope, I got some other clips. Maybe you but, get these? Yeah. Oh, I was just saying. I, I had some other clips on. Uh, Mac Wallace, if you want to run through those real quick. All right, let's go with those ones. And and before we do, I just want to explain to everybody that that likes to attack Joan Mellon on this whole thing. You know, at first, when Joan Mellon first heard the Mac Wallace story and the the accusations and and the fingerprint evidence and this and that, she was intrigued enough to want to write a book about Mac Wallace and expose him as being a, a, a killer. You know yeah, that, that was the original point of her book yeah I mean she was she was on she was on par you know with with the notion that that Mac Wallace was an assassin and in, in in the course of writing her book and looking into him and and looking into his past and actually not just relying on the the word of Nathan Darby actually taking it upon herself to hire an another independent fingerprint uh, analyst one up-to-date, one certified, you know, different evidences come about, and that altered the course of her book. Um, Yeah, she was doing that just to corroborate, just for independent corroboration, but it didn't come because it wasn't right. Nope. All right, here we go. Mac Wallace.
3: To perform assassinations, which included one of his own sister, Josefa, uh, uh, who, who turned out to be a bit of an alcoholic, uh, too much, uh, talking too much about Lyndon's business. He didn't like that, so he shut her up permanently. Probably the most famous story, absent uh, absent uh, Mac Wallace's involvement in the assassination of JFK is that of uh and agriculture.
1: Charles, here's where I have a problem with 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 people like Fetzer, and, and the problem is he has a voice, he has a radio show, he has a following, and when he says stuff like that, and he says it authoritatively, like it's you know set in stone that that Mac Wallace was was LBJ's personal hitman, and he had he even had his own sister killed, with absolutely no proof whatsoever of any of this shit. You know, that bothers me because I think he has a, a bigger responsibility than, you know, when if he's using airwaves like he is to, you know, purposely spread this misinformation and disinformation pertaining to the case. If, if he cares about it so much, he just it, it, it just pisses me off to, to hear him say so authoritatively that, you know, certain what he calls facts of the case, but nothing's proven. No, they're not facts
2: at all. They're what he believes. But he passes them off as facts.
1: Yeah, and people new to the he also case... He passes is,
2: himself off as an authority, and that's not true either.
1: Yeah. Ain't that the truth? And just the way he goes
2: about it, he's not objective whatsoever. He doesn't give any objectivity to it. He says what he believes, he believes what he says, and he tries to make other people believe it. Yep. And yet, like you said, there's no proof of any of what he's saying. There's just stories.
1: Stories. Yep. And most of the time, you look into them, they're hogwash. Yep. And yep. like you said, the problem is, you know, people believe them and they spread them like wildfire. Yeah. And hopefully today, because he's
2: a university professor, he knows what he's talking about.
1: Sure, he does. My God! Can you imagine how many minds he's poisoned through that throughout the years? <laughs> no kidding.
2: And I mean, the thing is with Fritzer too. It's not just JFK. He's got wild, crazy theories about all sorts of other stuff.
1: Yeah, Paul's dead. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, you look at some of his claims about nine eleven, and about laser beams coming down from outer space and
1: blowing up the twin towers. Yeah, those were actual claims. Yeah, and he's
2: claims to prove that Paul McCartney
1: is dead and was replaced with a double. Yeah. So this is what you're dealing with with this guy. But it it's a it's a clear pattern, Charles. I mean, you, you right. see you see with his with his JFK stuff what he does, he he, he takes other people's research and he latches on to it like his own and he and he, well, yeah. and he gets it out there and, and exploits it and then he moves on. Um you know, he, he, he just tries to waver For, from his own, as his own, 90% of that is stuff written by other people. Yeah. He edited it. <laughs> yeah, he edited it. He compiled his it. Stuff. No, I mean, and his personal research, I have never seen. I mean, he latches onto this Oswald in the doorway crap from, from Ralph k You know, he latches onto J.V. Uh, Judith Very Baker stuff, but that's her story. You know, he's just. Pushes other stuff. Richard Hook, Richard Charm, and he latches on all this stuff. Yeah. But in
2: reality, what has he ever done for his own research? He doesn't. He he uses other people's research and tries to make it his.
1: Yeah, he's a coattail rider. Exactly. And boy, I called him that one time, and he did not like it. <laughs> but it's yeah. true. Well, I mean, I'm not saying anything here that I wouldn't say to his face, and haven't said to his face. So just to make that real clear. Well, he was on our, he was
2: on our um, Facebook page, the JFK Assassination Research Bureau. We let him in. He started getting confrontational. He started insulting people, so we threw him out. So what does he do? He turns around and writes a unflattering, uh, insulting article about us and our page and posts it on Veterans Today website.
1: Yeah, I remember that.
2: And that's, that's
1: what the guy does. Unbelievable.
2: If you're not with me, you're against me.
1: Exactly. <laughs> All right, Charles. I think that's about it. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, to touch on today? No, I think we've covered off uh, quite a bit. Good stuff there, and uh, you know, it's uh,
2: you know, it's continuing to, uh, to beat these guys, but I uh, battle with them. But I think the more and more uh, we get out there, and the more and more we try and expose these people, then eventually. They'll go away, and then the proper research can get done. Yeah, because right now they're just providing a distraction for people.
1: Yeah, been doing a and damn good job. I think at
2: times they do it on purpose.
1: Yeah, because they like to be the center of attention. Yep, or but, or or worse, you know, they could be uh, paid to 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 do this stuff. No,
2: what's claims
1: um, they actually could possibly believe because most of them are, are ridiculous. Yeah, and refutable. So you gotta, you gotta not
2: listen to these guys and if you hear a story, just do a little bit of research on it because it doesn't take much. If a story is nonsense, it doesn't take much research to, to prove
1: that really quickly. Yeah, I mean, people have been trying to say that's Oswald in the doorway for 50 years and yeah. nobody's proved it yet. So, it wasn't true then, and
2: it's not true now.
1: No, no, and it's
2: never going to be true, no matter what they say.
1: Nope. and that's not George Bush and Dealey Plaza, and with no, that, without, without, yeah, without any any. There's har- no proof that Mac Wallace was on the sixth floor. Nope. Without that fingerprint, everything falls apart. Yes. So, people, do your own research. Don't, don't. You know, you don't even have to believe what me and Charles are telling you, but don't believe what these other guys are saying either. No. Do your own research and you'll find the right answer. Jeez. Yeah, stick to the documents, people. Yep. All right, Charles. Well, hopefully, we'll open, right. we'll open a couple of eyeballs today and, and get people thinking. Please. And And uh, hopefully, have them do 180s here.
2: Just got to do our best. That's all we can do.
1: That's right. All right, buddy. I appreciate you coming back on the show. Well, I'm glad you have me. Uh, anytime you want, just uh, give me so I'll be happy to come on. Cool, cool. All right, will you hang on for me, Charles? All right. Everybody out there, please go check out my buddy Doug Campbell's podcast, The Dallas Action. He is back and he is podcasting. Go go, give him a listen. 22NovemberNetwork.wordpress.com, TLGPodcast.com for all your related uh, links and, and items talked about on today's show. Once again, I thank Charles Cliff for joining me. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and look forward to doing it again, buddy. Alrighty, this is Rob Clark on the Lone Gumming Podcast. This some bitches in the can up to the satellite, down directly to your ears, people. This is Rob Clark. Out.